You are listening to Energy 360. I'm Sarah Ladislaw, Director of the Energy and National Security Program here at CSIS and your host this week. Today I'm joined by Morgan Bazilian, who is an associate here at, this, at CSIS. Morgan was also recently appointed as the Executive Director of the Payne Institute for Earth Resources at Colorado School of Mines. Morgan, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure, Sarah. Um, so, Morgan, we just had an event upstairs uh, in honor of St. Patrick's Day, uh, tis the season, and um, but also as an opportunity to focus on some of the things that you've worked on your career over your career, which is um, the intersection between energy and development, particularly in conflict zones. Um, could you talk a little bit about some of your experience working in that field, but then also what we just talked about is relates to the lessons learned from Ireland in the post-conflict environment. Sure. And uh, thanks for having me, Sarah. And uh, the listeners can't see, but we both have Irish U.S. <laughs> pins on, which we I do. think is important. Um, so uh, this area, uh, the broad area of energy and conflict or energy and fragile states and conflict, um, uh, is a, is an interest of mine, and I've been working on it in several countries, especially when I was at the World Bank. I worked uh, in the Afghanistan portfolio and also uh, in South Sudan. And I'll talk about a couple pieces of analytical work in those places. Um, the contours of this um, relationship between energy and conflict span from uh, the provision of energy services to people in these uh, places in conflict or post-conflict um, to uh, more recent initiatives uh, in energy at refugee camps uh, and places where people have migrated from um, horrors of war or 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 even uh, weather-related disasters. So, um, if we take the, the 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 latter topic first, there's some really interesting work happening at Chatham House around an initiative called the Moving Energy Initiative, and that initiative is working with the UNHCR and other bodies that 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 work in refugee situations and looking at how best to provide energy services from a sustainability perspective and also just from a, a human welfare perspective. And, and there's been some really interesting progress there. Uh, and it aligns with technological progress we've seen in, in say, solar energy, where the costs have declined um, so much that um, you've seen refugee camps in places like Jordan put up large standalone systems. And it also has impacted um, systems uh, like mini-grids or micro-grids um, in these fragile uh, situations. Um, and so there's some exciting work there on resilience and, 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 and energy. Um, so that's one piece of this energy and conflict uh, possible area of exploration. Um, Another is in related areas, which are urban slums or peri-urban places where you're seeing a very different kind of approach to energy investment. And the World Bank has been working quite a lot in the slums in uh, Nairobi, as an example, um, and uh, in Brazil as well, in the favelas in uh, Rio and, 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 and similar. So there's because of the technological 
changes, the cost declines, et cetera, you're, you're seeing a lot more renewable energy uh, systems or mini grids with hybrid systems in these situations. So that's, that's, a, that's a change from the past. Um, then we have the investment or the planning for how you work in conflict zones, live conflict zones. And that remains a, an, an, an open question. Uh, the people in these places are obviously suffering uh, terribly. And how um, can a place like the World Bank or anyone uh, in the investment space help with uh, anything from uh, planning to infrastructure to market development, et cetera, in these areas? And uh, well, there's no clear answer. Um, but we've recently done some, we, when I was at the World Bank, we, we did some geospatial planning modeling in Afghanistan. That was to look at how you might approach rural electrification in Afghanistan, given the underlying uh, uncertainties that surround conflict in that country, and with up-to-date assumptions about the costs of energy technologies across the board. And are there better ways to deliver energy services to the people currently without those, which in that country um, is a large group of people outside of Kabul? Um, and so the, the first step was to, 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 to look at the demographics and the, the energy modeling. And so there's a, a paper out now from the World Bank on that. Um, and we tried to take into consideration some of the risks uh, posed to say, large-scale projects in those countries. We did a more detailed analytical approach on this topic in South Sudan um, that, of course, is our, also witnessing uh, horrors in the country. Um, and what we did there was we took a typical energy modeling least cost plan. In other words, the mathematics take an algorithm that, say, um, find the least cost solution to providing energy services. And we added a patina or a filter, a fragile filter, if you will, onto that mathematical modeling. And that fragile filter um, uh, increased the, the, the cost for different kind of risky, riskier projects. So in other words, what we did was, let's say uh, the larger the project or the, the longer the transmission project, um, the more risk we put on to the financial aspect of it. Um, and what we found was something rather intuitive, which is that you would, under an optimal scenario with that fragile filter, you would uh, actually, rather than build large-scale uh, infrastructure and transmission and generation, you would likely build a series of smaller-scale mini-grids or microgrids that, that um, allowed for um, quicker build and also less likely to be hampered by um, violence or bombing uh, 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 or um, the lack of availability to capital, right? So they were smaller scale, they're incremental, modular, et cetera. So all the things that people have been talking about in terms of resilience came out in the math. Um, we're currently working on more sophisticated mathematical formulations of that using stochastic programming and, and all kinds of other things. Um, but I believe that the result of that will not be dissimilar to our first sort of simplistic pass. 
And so that that hopefully can inform future uh, investment strategies or uh, strategies by the government. And and uh, I think you, we might see some of that uh, in Afghanistan in the short term anyway. So um, yes, yeah, so some contours of that energy and conflict space. And it was a great session today. So thanks for having me. Yeah, it was great. And uh, your colleague, uh, Brian O'Gallagher from University of Cork, I uh, gave an overview uh, along with a theory uh, that um, in the context of Ireland and the um, uh, the development of an electricity market between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, um, that actually keeping electricity planning out of the sort of post-conflict resolution process was helpful to getting what is ultimately technical work done over a period of time. Just to say, yes, we, we had a great story from Brian O'Gallagher from UCC on post-conflict Ireland and the, the energy situation there. And uh, it's a fascinating example of where, as Brian said, energy was not included in the Good Friday agreements and yet has emerged as one of the success stories of cooperation between the Republic and the North. And that takes the form of the all-island electricity market and more recently the uh, um, all-island natural gas market and their, so not just the market um, and its clearing in, 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 in pounds and euros and, and uh, being synchronous across the island in the case of electricity, but the infrastructure associated with it from um, gas pipelines to to electricity infrastructure. So a really interesting, ongoing, and seemingly successful story in a post-conflict situation um, that we think might have some resonance to other border conflict issues uh, that exist. Now, there's very different histories, um, very different infrastructure, very different energy profiles in other places where you could envisage uh, cross-border cooperation, whether it's India to Pakistan and vice versa, or Israel and Palestine, or um, South Sudan and Sudan, um, you know, very different starting places. And, you know, to remember that even in the case of Ireland, which is not suffering from the level of violence in the places I've just mentioned, um, still after 20 years, there are um, areas for further work and, and, and challenges to overcome um, not least of which, uh, as, as Brian discussed, uh, the uncertainties thrown in by, by, by Brexit. I'd like to go back to something that you said, Morgan, or at least tie on to some, uh, an idea that you were bringing up, which is um, that there is an emerging sort of recognition of the opportunities that are coming from new energy technologies to provide energy services in conflict uh, environments. There's also another impact that energy has on conflict environments that you've recently done some work on, which is the role of minerals and metals in the energy transition and what that might do in some of these locations. Could you talk a little bit about that work? Sure, thanks. Um, so you know, if we conceive of the energy transition as a move towards uh, more clean energy and uh, things like the electrification of vehicles and storage systems such as batteries, um, and you project this out several decades, the 
since the technologies would be dramatically different in, in, in scope to what we see today, those technologies have specific mineral and metal uh, demand impacts. As an example, on uh, things like lithium and cobalt, um, which have been in the news quite a bit recently, right? And so um, the, the mineral foundations, as it were, for the, for the energy transition um, are very different by mineral, and they're very different by your assumptions about what technologies will win or what technologies will see massively deployed. And so um, some, some um, like cobalt, which is um, at least today's market largely found in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, have very different supply chain profiles um, to uh, things like, say, copper, which has, you know, has a large markets and uh, uh, transparent markets, and and to cobalt, which uh, from the DRC um, has a lot of challenges around um, in-country governance issues and opacity of transactions, and so what you're seeing is not only pressure on these minor metals in some cases that don't have these big deep markets, but you're also seeing opaque transactions. So we saw in the news I don't, a couple weeks ago about Apple making a deal for cobalt. We also see the car manufacturers, VW and BMW, and all of them doing bilateral deals for to secure their supply chains for these minerals and metals. And um, that makes for a very different set of markets um, uh, across the world. And so there's a lot of interesting work to be done in that area. And um, the World Bank had put out an initial paper uh, on some of these issues. The European Union uh, Joint Research Center has some papers on it. And um, in, in, in those cases, the Colorado School of Mines had played a, a, a useful supporting role given the expertise um, in, in, in some of the major metals and um, the, 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 the supply chain and markets. Um, so I think there's a lot more work to be done there. There's more uh, work by the, both the industry and by um, the industry on the mining side as well as the, the, the helping to look at resource mapping as well as looking at scenarios of the future, which of course are inherently wrong. And so trying to predict um, what that foundation will look like is also is terribly difficult. Absolutely. The points that you just made on minerals and metals and the energy transition is something that you talked about at Sierra Week, which we were yeah. both at, but yeah. maybe only for like two common hours. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that was also a significant theme at Sierra Week was the role that oil and gas companies in particular are trying to play in the transition. And you have written on that recently as well. Can you tell me about what you found in your research about the role that they're playing and what further research you think might need to be done on that? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So Sierra Week, uh, um, I addressed it uh, in, in two places. One was a panel on methane emissions from natural gas. Um, where um, I was on a panel with both the EDF as well as the OGCI, the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative. 
and Pratima, who runs that, was 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 on that panel, a fascinating panel, and showing that, you know, the oil and gas companies are looking um, to best practice in these areas, not just methane emissions from fugitives, but also um, from flaring. And there are um, some global initiatives like the the bank's global gas flaring initiative that are really important in that area. Um, uh, the work we had done prior to going to Houston was to take a look and create a framework for how we would consider the um, oil and gas majors. That's the independence, not the, we didn't look at the national oil companies at the, uh, on this uh, phase, um, and their role in the energy transition vis-a-vis -vis their investment in renewables. So we used a, a sort of academic framework to consider their investments um, by some of the the big players from Total to Shell um, and, and, and others and look at their re-engagement in, in some cases, like in the case of BP, with um, renewable energy. And um, we found that you know, most of them or all of them that we, we, we looked at are re-engaging or, or engaging in renewable energy, uh, sometimes in a big way, and that their specific skill sets and knowledge of the energy sector and engineering uh, capacities were all really important factors in, 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 in them being in those spaces, and that it seems that it's, it's important for the energy transition, however we envisage it, that they that those companies play 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 a role in it. Um, there's plenty of further work to do. So that was essentially a review and a scan of what's happening. It's changing daily. And so we're having a hard time even in an academic publication chasing down every one of the new announcements that's happening li literally all the time. Um, I think we could expand it by looking further than renewable energy. So you can look at energy efficiency. You can also look at CCS. You could look at uh, other technologies that may or may not make up what, what the energy transition looks like in 10, 20, 30 years. Um, and we could also look more closely at some of the knocks um, and what they're doing, because some of them um, are, are playing important roles in this as well. And we've seen, obviously, a lot of press coming out of Saudi Aramco and uh, places like Adnoc, et cetera. So I think there's a lot more work to be done, and it's an important mapping of what the energy transition could look like. Yeah, I agree. I, one of the things that I found interesting about uh, your work on this, but also in some work that we're doing, is you know, as a student of the energy system transition, figuring out what companies are learning from these endeavors. and given how rapidly we've seen business models change on the electric power side of the equation, you know, how much of that gets replicated on the, the oil and gas and transportation side going forward, I think is going to be a really rich area for further work. Yeah, and you can see evidence of that and how, say, Shell is approaching some of this and making investments in power companies. So, you know, you and I have discussed in the past how when we think of these the energy transition, it's difficult to group together power or electricity with oil and gas. They have different markets, they have different players, they have different um, technologies, but um, it looks like we're seeing more um, overlap 
between the two sectors than we had in the the past, and that'll make for some interesting uh, interaction. So, Morgan, at the outset of uh, our talk together today, I mentioned that you're heading up a new institute, the Pain Institute out uh, in Colorado. I would be remiss not to ask you, what are you going to do? What what are your plans so far, and uh, and where should people go to check out what you guys are doing? So uh, thanks for that, Sarah. I, I just move, uh, moved to the new role about two weeks ago. So you have it all figured out. So, so <laughs> I haven't had it all figured out, but I did get some skiing and to moving there. Um, so I'm going to be... Uh, heading something uh, called the Pain Institute. It was uh, created after an endowment um, by Jim and Arlene Payne. Uh, he was a alumnus at uh, the Colorado School of Mines and uh, in the oil and gas sector for a long career. And the thought is to take what is uh, one of the country's finest uh, energy, natural resources, and environment institutions um, focused on engineering and science and, and, and bring a, a, a level of public policy discourse um, to the campus as well as allow for um, decision makers to benefit from the, 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 the rigorous uh, science and engineering uh, stemming from the campus. So um, we are going to um, look around the country and see what the other energy institutes at a, a great universities are doing and try to find a, a reasonable space for us to make a contribution there. Uh, the Colorado School of Mines has been around for a long time, since 1874, two years before Colorado got statehood. And, um, you know, is, is, is certainly seen in the industry, in the oil and gas and mining industry, as a objective, um, honest broker uh, in the space, and so I hope I can bring some of that to to, to, to convening discussions uh, out in Colorado, and everyone seems enthusiastic to come out and ski or <laughs> do other uh, fun things in, in Colorado. So uh, uh, it remains to be seen, but I'll keep you posted. That's great. Well, I'm sure it won't be hard to get people to visit you, but we sure look forward to working with you guys at the Pain Institute. Thanks so much. Great. Morgan, it's been great talking with you today. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Again, I'm Sarah Ladislaw, and you've been listening to Energy 360.